Okay, welcome to 751, episode 8. Hopefully, more regularly produced episodes will be coming. Uh, I'm your host, Carter Laren, and today we're going to talk about um, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation uh, hearings that have been happening. There have been some crazy stuff uh, this week uh, with respect to the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, and today is no different. I mean, we've seen people yelling what seems to be mostly nonsense, although maybe some of them were yelling something intelligible. It was difficult to uh, to hear. Uh, but lots of yelling and getting ejected from the, the hearing. Uh, there was this allegation that Zena Bash was flashing a white power sign, which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit later, although that's not a huge deal. Um, and, uh, and you've got Kamala Harris this week trying to do these little weird gotchas. And I think thinking that she's making some interesting points, but actually, uh, as far as I can tell, um, just uh, trying to little have little gotchas or things like that. So, you know, the other day, I think it was yesterday, she said, uh, oh, have you ever spoken to anyone at uh, Kasowitz Benson Torres, which is, I guess is uh, Trump's personal law firm the law firm that represents him personally. Uh, so she asked Kavanaugh, have you ever spoken to anyone there about the Mueller investigation? And of course, you know, he's he's kind of saying, well, I mean, it's in the news. I, I talk to people about the Mueller investigation generally. Uh, and she said, yeah, but did you talk to anyone there? And he kind of says, well, you know, there's there's lots of lawyers around. I, I don't know. I, who works there? Why don't, why don't you tell me who works there? And, and basically, he's kind of saying, tell me who works there. If you're someone in particular you're thinking of, or if you want to give me a list of the employees, I can go through and see if I know any of them and may, may have spoken to them about Mueller. But remember, he's he wants to avoid, he's answering smartly, right? He wants to avoid any kind of a, a gotcha. Because in, in Kamala Harris's, in Senator Harris's fantasy world, right, what she gets him to say is, uh, no, I've never spoken to anyone about the Mueller investigation there. Right. And of course, he's speaking to lots of people about it because it's in the news. And so, you know, she didn't say colluding or trying to influence or anything. She just said speaking about it. So in her fantasy, he says, no, I didn't. And then she says, what about so and so? Right. And and of course, his response would likely be like, oh, I didn't realize you worked there. I don't remember where everyone works. That's why I asked for a list of people that work there so I could know who you're talking about. Right. Uh, and then, of course, she would say, gotcha, you're a liar. You lied about this, blah, blah, blah. So it was a, a childish, stupid kind of setup. But Kamal Harris then, of course, went on, bragged about how he didn't answer the question. But it, it was uh, clearly designed just as a trap. Um, and it was a disingenuous question. If she has concerns that he collaborated with someone there or tried to influence the investigation or do something nefarious, she should ask those questions. If there's someone that she thinks uh, in particular, uh he he spoke to, then she should ask him. But of course she didn't, because that's not her goal. Uh, her goal is to make a scene. Uh, she also asked, can you can you think of any laws that give government the power to make decisions about the male body? Right? And of course his answer was, well, I'm not thinking of any right now. Right? Um, and then she used that, of course, on, on Twitter and to, to pass around, aha, I gotcha. Which I'm not sure w what that means. He didn't write all the laws in, in the country. I don't know why this is Brett Kavanaugh's fault. Um, I can think of one, uh, the draft. I think the draft affects male bodies pretty severely. There's a, I don't know, pile of dead male bodies in history because of the draft. So uh, there are certainly laws that affect the male body. Now, of course, she's referring to Roe v. Wade and, 
and uh, and the abortion issue. But you know, it's not Kavanaugh's fault, and who cares that he, you know, couldn't think of a body that uh, a law that affected the male body. And I don't know what her point was, but it certainly was enough to get her base all excited about her and think that she was awesome. <clears throat> now. But what I really want to talk about is the craziness today. Um, And the craziness today was brought to us by uh, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. Uh, It was a little bit more complicated to see just how crazy uh, this whole thing was. Now, I think this is in the same category as the white power sign that was supposedly, allegedly flashed. Uh, But it's a little bit more complicated, so it's harder to see why why it's this crazy. And I went through the emails... And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, I broke this down uh, from a layperson's perspective into what actually was released and what was going on uh, and, and what it kind of means. So Cory Booker made a big deal today about releasing, quote, confidential emails uh, in violation of the Senate rules. Now, and, and he was kind of saying, I understand he actually here, this is a direct quote. I understand that the penalty comes with potential ousting from the Senate. Uh, and then he says, I openly invite and accept the consequences of my team releasing that email right now. So he's he's saying this is a big deal. We have to release it. And I'm standing on principle and look at me risking my career. And aren't I a hero? Uh, now, in actuality, he was uh, authorized to release it. He knew it. He had been authorized the previous uh, evening. So he's just making a big deal uh, about it to get some attention. But, um, but... You know, let's assume that uh, it is a big deal, and he he would have done this anyway. I'm not clear that he would have, but you know, someone who's going to stand up and say that, and I'm going to release these emails and potentially get ousted from the Senate and violate these confidentiality rules. Well, there must be something pretty damning in those emails that we need to we need to uh, find out, right? I mean, why else would you do that? Why would you risk your career? Supposedly, why would you do this? Um, so. Uh, so we looked at the emails. There's not many, um, and I'm going to go through them here. So there's basically four different email chains, but they're around three subjects. So there's only three subjects here. This is not a lot of emails. Um, at the time, this is important to know, Brett Kavanaugh was the uh, an associate that had been hired by the White House uh, counsel, uh, Alberto Gonzalez at the time. So uh, he's working... Uh, for the White House as as a as an associate as part of the White House Council. Okay, so before I dig in, need a sip of water here. So let's go through the three subjects that are in these emails, and I'll go through them uh, chronologically here. And they, they weren't chronological, and they were kind of mixed up in the in the release. So as I said, there's three subjects, and there's four email chains. So the first subject actually has two different email chains that refer to the same topic. And a little background is required here. The topic that is referred to is is a case called uh, Adirond Constructors Incorporated versus Norman Mineta, who was the Secretary of Transportation at the time um, in 2001. And this case actually uh, is related to a previous case, uh, Adirond, uh, Adirond 1, I guess they called that case, which was Adirond Constructors Incorporated versus Pena. And that case was a Supreme Court case that turned out to be a landmark uh, decision, which held that racial classifications imposed by the federal government must be analyzed under a standard of, quote, strict scrutiny. 
uh, which is the most stringent level of review and requires that racial, cl racial classifications be narrowly tailored to further compelling governmental interests. So uh, basically, you know, this, this old, older case uh, from 1995, Adirond Constructors uh, versus Pena, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the government, uh, if they're going to use racial, racial classifications, uh, in, in order to be allowed, they must be uh, analyzed under a standard of strict scrutiny, um, saying that they, they must be narrowly tailored to further compelling government interests. So this was kind of an important case. And this case, there was questions about how to apply uh, the outcome of the Supreme Court case to race-based uh, components of the Disadvantaged Business Enterprise uh, Program of the Department of Transportation. So the, the Department of Transportation had this Disadvantaged Business Enterprise Program, um, and there were questions about how to apply the Adirond ruling, and it went back and forth with the 10th Circuit Court. And at the moment of this email chain, I'm sorry for all this background, but you kind of need to know, at the moment of this email chain, um, this newest case, Adirond Constructors Inc. versus Norman Mineta, who again is the Secretary of Transportation, uh, that's, that's going on now. Okay, so the first email chain is uh, is consists of basically just two emails. The first email is sent in March 2001 by Brett Kavanaugh to his boss Alberto Gonzalez uh, and some other uh, other people in the White House, and the subject is Adirond other considerations. Now, in this email, basically, I'll summarize it for you here. Um, he talks about some opinions of his about how the Solicitor General should act independently and come up with his own independent conclusion about this case uh, regarding the constitutionality of these uh, disadvantaged business enterprise or DBE uh, program at the DOT. So he's saying, hey, the Solicitor General should act independently here uh, to draw his own conclusions regarding the constitutionality of this. Uh, the president shouldn't dictate or even hint to the Solicitor General uh, what what the position that he would like to see is, right? Um, and he says, look, even though there's nothing technically wrong with the president driving this, it's kind of standard process to let the Solicitor General be independent, and we should do that. And if we don't, it would cause a lot of PR uh, problems and criticisms. So that's one point he makes. Another point he makes is he talks about, well, from a PR perspective, Kavanaugh recommends that... Uh, you know, the president should respond in a certain way if he's asked about the case. And his, basically his, his recommendation is for the president to say, yeah, we'll wait for the Justice Department. We're, we're going to wait for the Solicitor General. So, so that's another point he makes. Um, then he proposes that the judge in the case communicate to the Attorney General and the Solicitor General that the president will wait for their recommendation. Um, and then that there should be no further communication between the White House and the Justice Department about the case. So, by the way, all this obviously... Pretty normal, doing his job, sounds fine, okay, sounds upstanding. Um, then he comments about the um, PR or media attention that this could bring to uh, the Ted Olson situation. Now, Ted Olson, at the time of this email, Ted Olson is a guy who's been nominated for Solicitor General by Bush, but he hasn't been confirmed yet. So remember, this is all under George W. Bush's uh, uh, presidency. So... Uh, and Kavanaugh's working for, for the Bush office here. So Bush nominated Ted Olson uh, for Solicitor General. He hadn't been confirmed yet. And Kavanaugh says, and this is a quote, this case makes Ted Olson's hearing more likely to gain attention and draw fire given what he has written and 
who he has represented in race cases. Okay, so I don't know, not clear who he's represented in race cases or what he's written. Did a quick internet search here from from Wikipedia. Basically, we we learned that Ted Olson is uh, he basically uh, you know had a, had some high profile clients. Uh, There's one in the 80s named Jonathan Pollard who'd been convicted of selling government secrets to Israel. It was uh, I guess Olson had defended. Um, he argued about a dozen cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, he argued against federal sentencing guidelines and defended actually a member of the press who had first leaked the Anita Hill story. If you recall uh, the Anita Hill uh, sexual harassment controversy uh, was, was a big deal uh, during Justice Clarence Thomas's uh, confirmation. Um, and he also actually, Olson also uh, represented uh, George W. Bush in the Supreme Court case Bush versus Gore, which ended the recount of the contested 2000 presidential election. So those are some things you find online. I don't see anything. I haven't found anything online that indicates Olson was some kind of uh, racist or, or anything. In fact, later he went on to advocate for uh, gay marriage and fight against Prop 8 in California. And so he doesn't seem like a, a, a crazy, super crazy right winger or anything. But, um, you know, Kavanaugh was concerned that all this attention um could could cause problems for Ted Olson's hearing given again what he says given what he's written and who's rep, who he represented in race cases so perhaps he represented some uh, nefarious individuals uh, of course lawyers lawyers do do that sometimes i don't know what he had written uh but but regardless Kavanaugh doesn't say whether Ted Olson is good or bad or agrees with him or anything he's just saying it's going to be a PR issue so it's his job to alert people to that so uh, finally, in this email, he clarifies an approach to the case um, that apparently he had ref- referenced in, in an email that we don't have here, but uh, he, he suggests that the Solicitor General, um, you know, his, his, what he would expect or, or want the Solicitor General to do would be uh, to file a brief declaring the program, this, this DOT program, uh, Department of Transportation program, unconstitutional, and that would then force the Supreme Court to appoint a counsel to defend the program. Um, but then he goes and says, look, this is my personal opinion about what the Solicitor General should do. Uh, we shouldn't dictate or hint that to the Solicitor General at all. It should be completely up to him, but that's, that's what I would do, basically. Uh, so who knows what he's going to do, but that's what, I, that's what I would do. So that's the end of that email. Nothing exciting there uh, if you're a sane person. And that email is then responded to in the second email in that chain by someone named Courtney Elwood. And she responds basically by saying, hey, you know, Olson might not to decide not decide to declare the program unconstitutional like you're like you say you would do, Brett. She's saying Olson might not decide to do that um, because there's a longstanding practice in the department to defend against constitutional challenges kind of by default. Like we kind of automatically defend against those challenges as a kind of default stance. So that's the end of that email chain. I don't know what was so exciting to Cory Booker about that. Um, well, actually, nothing, I'm sure. But uh, I guess race was mentioned, maybe? I don't know. Um, maybe the word race gets him excited. But there's nothing that Kavanaugh said or did in that chain uh, to to cause any concerns. So we move on to email chain number two. Same subject, though. We're still talking about this uh, Adirond case. Okay, so email chain number two. Remember, the first chain was back in March of 2001. The second chain is now in August of 2001. And it's get, it gets kicked off by a guy named or, or, or 
gal, I'm not actually sure uh, the gender here, but Noel Francisco uh, sends an email to Alberto Gonzalez, Brett Kavanaugh, and Timothy Flanagan, all in the White House Counsel's Office. And the subject of this email is Adirond. Now, a little background here. Um, at this point, Ted Olson, uh, he's now confirmed, so he actually is the Solicitor General at this point, and he has chosen to not challenge the constitutionality of this uh, disadvantaged business enterprise program of the Department of Transportation, so we'll just call it the DBE program. He's decided to not challenge the constitutionality of the DBE program, but to instead defend it. So basically, it turned out Courtney Elwood was right that that's the decision he would make. Uh, and Brett said, well, I might do this other thing if I were him, but it should be up to him. He didn't do the other thing. He did what what uh, Courtney Elwood thought he would do, which is to defend it. So so now the Solicitor General here is defending the disadvantaged business enterprise uh, program of the Department of Transportation. Um, and this is this the challenge here, the, the, the concern here is that it may violate uh, the Adirond one ruling uh, with the Supreme Court, which basically means, again, just to remind you, I know this can kind of be a little bit complicated, but this Adirond ruling said that uh, the government can't really have these racial classifications uh, unless they're, they pass the standard of strict scrutiny. So uh, the contention here is that this, this program, this DBE program, wouldn't pass the strict scrutiny muster of racial classification. So that's that's the context here. And again, this email chain is kicked off by uh, Noel, and Noel uh, Francisco suggests a couple of ways to defend this uh, this DBE program, because that's their job now. They're, they're, that's the Solicitor General's job is to defend it. Uh, he says, well, they could argue that the government should have known about discrimination, and it was deliberately indifferent to it. Right? So therefore... Uh, the DBE program, uh, even if it doesn't meet these strict guidelines, it was for compelling government interests, which is kind of a carve-out here in the, in the original ruling. Is you have to have these strict scrutiny uh, unless it's, they're narrowly tailored. These classifications are narrowly ta- tailored to further compelling governmental interests. So uh, Noel is saying, hey, we should argue that... Um, the government knew about the discrimination. They were deliberately indifferent, and therefore the DBE program was uh, for compelling governmental interests, even if it violates these uh, this strict scrutiny. Um, so that's one point he makes. And the second point he makes is, um, hey, we should rearrange some stuff in this brief. They had to file a brief. We're going to rearrange some stuff in this brief so that it makes it uh, more likely to survive the strict scrutiny requirement. Right? And I, again, I'm not a lawyer, but from what he his argument there made sense, it was probably a good idea uh, if your goal is to uh, to defend this DBE program, which which that was their legitimate goal. Okay, so he does that. Email number two in this chain is from Timothy Flanagan. He just says, hey, I agree with uh, Noel's suggestions. Okay, done. Email number three, which is the last email in this chain, uh, and I guess if, if Senator Booker released this, uh, I guess this must be where the, quote, bombshell must be, but... Uh, uh, email number three is, uh, is, is Brett Kavanaugh's response. And his response is, well, first of all, I agree with uh, point number two, right? this, this rearranging. So uh, like I said, it made sense to me. Makes sense to Brett Kavanaugh. Okay, so he agrees with point number two. 
But then he says, well, look, as to point number one, now remember point number one was uh, saying, well, the government knew about discrimination. They were deliberately indifferent to it. Therefore, this program is compelling government interest, so it's okay. Uh, so he says, look, as to that point, that would introduce a concept that, at least to my knowledge, has not previously appeared in Supreme Court's equal protection jurisprudence, which means it would require an elaboration and justification in the brief. So he's, basically he's saying, look, this is kind of a it's not previously appeared. It's going to be. It's going to be a new thing. We'll have to justify if we kind of make that point. This could risk some things because we'll have to elaborate and justify. And then he kind of makes uh, four, four points, or he has kind of he calls them kind of I think questions, but uh, one of them is not really a question. But he makes four points about this uh, deliberate indifference standard is what he calls it, which is kind of this this argument that Noel's suggesting that hey maybe maybe we should say the government knew about it and it was deliberately indifferent and and that's what makes this program okay. So he asks a few questions. He asks four questions. One, would it mean, he says, would it mean that a victim of a private discrimination couldn't sue the government on some theory that the government was merely indifferent to rather than the cause of private discrimination, right? That might massively expand government liability. So he's right on that. That is an issue, right? Yeah, right? So if 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 a, if a private individual can say, hey, the government kind of knew there was uh, uh, discrimination here in this private area uh, and they were indifferent to it, um, but now you're liable, government, because you were indifferent. That that does perhaps massively expand the government's liability. But he just asked a question about it, right? You know, was was this what would happen, right? Uh, the second one is he says, well, how do you prove the government's deliberately indifferent? Valid question, right? That might be might be tough. Um, the third thing he he asks is, hey, would this new requirement actually limit the government's use of race based classifications? Because you know, what if they need to use them for? for something and uh, now they can't, right? Because they can right now for certain cases with this limited in any way. It's another valid question to ask. Um, and the last thing, which is less of a question, more of a point, he says, look, this argument implies that these regulations are race-based, but uh, I don't think the brief that we file with the court should make the assumption that they're race-based because it's gonna cause a problem. And he kind of goes on to explain that a little bit. And he says, the fundamental problem is that these Department of Transportation regulations actually are uh, racially based, but they use a lot of confusing language to hide it, so it makes it difficult to argue one way or another, right? Which is why he's he's kind of concerned, like, well, we don't want to file a brief that says they're race based because they're going to kind of be stuck with that. But they don't they don't really say that in the language; it's kind of confusing. So he basically says, look, be, because of this, if we if we go down this path, I think basically four or five of the Supreme Court justices would would see through this and rule based on that. So he basically he's just saying, hey, you know. I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think this will win. Doing it this way, I think we should argue this other way, right? Uh, and that's it. Now, I didn't see anything racist there, and I don't think any sane person sees anything racist or problematic there or or uh, dishonest or anything else. I, you know, um, if we're going to pat Peter Stroke on the back for uh, for his emails... I'm not sure how we're condemning Brett Kavanaugh for these innocuous emails, which actually I would argue aren't innocuous. I actually argue that these are in his favor. They're showing that he's, you know, doing his job, thinking of all the, you know, if you've ever been involved in a lawsuit, you don't just, you know, scream what you want. You have to really think about uh, the points you're making and how how uh, implications that you make could be used against you or assumptions you make could be used against you. It's it's a complex process, and you look at it from many angles, and you figure out the best argument, which is what he's doing here. So there's nothing, there's literally nothing here. And that is subject number one. That's of the three subjects, 
that's that's it for subject number one. So it was those two email chains and nothing, uh, a big nothing burger, as they say. So now, just in in the in context historically here, um, between subject one and subject two, um, 9-11 happens. So subject one, these last emails that I've been speaking about, they occur in, um, let's see, August of 2001. Uh, the next email chain begins in January of 2002. So this is literally just uh, a few months after 9-11. You remember lots of concern about terrorist attacks. The, we passed some horrific things like the Patriot Act, and, uh, and the government got much more intrusive, and, and now, we, now we take our shoes off at the airport and don't think anything of it. But uh, there was a lot of hysteria at the time about what to do about this because this, uh, this was an issue. So um, there was... Uh, the subject of, of this is is actually called racial profiling. Now, this is what Cory Booker uh, actually referenced when in the, in the hearings. He said, "Oh, there's these emails, and the subject is racial profiling." And obviously, that sounds pretty bad, um, and, and maybe it is. So let's look. So again, context: 9/11 just happened. They're worried about security here, and. In January 2002, someone named uh, Helgard Walker sends an email to Alberto Gonzalez and the rest of the team there. Uh, and Brett, Brett is on the team. Brett Kavanaugh is on the team. And the subject of this email is racial profiling. And the, they're talking actually about airport screening in this email. Uh, and he says, I'll, I'll quote this, In light of our discussion at a staff meeting this morning, I wanted to confirm for everybody, especially the judge, the issues for up for decision in the internal administration working group. So apparently there's some sort of internal administration working group. They're trying to come up with some kind of airport screening protocols, and I guess they're talking to a judge about it. Um, and so he says, you know, he's sending this email, this guy, uh, Helgard, uh, I think Helgard is a male name. Maybe it's a female name. Mr. or Mrs. Walker is sending this, uh, this email saying, hey, in light of this meeting, I want to confirm for everybody what issues we're talking about in this little working group. Okay. And he says, number one, uh, there's not widespread agreement in this group that we should work toward a race-neutral system for airport security. So he's saying, look, not everyone agrees that this, this system that we should implement uh, in the long run should be, should be race-neutral. It implies that some people in this group think, actually, they should take race into account. Uh, and so he says, look, therefore, the issue here is not what do we do in the meantime, right? What do we do for an interim program until we have our, our kind of final program? But we have a four, we have a, sorry, we have a more fundamental issue about whether the goal is to have a race-neutral program at all, right? And that's, he says, look, this is, this is an issue in the group. Uh, not everyone agrees it should be race-neutral in the long run, so we shouldn't really be worrying about uh, the short run. We should be worrying about we need to solve this issue first of, of whether it should be race neutral in the long run. And Walker says, uh, we should at least consider a race neutral system. It could be very effective. And then he goes on to describe how it might work, um, but that it could cause privacy concerns and other things. Um, and then he says, another school of thought, and so we can assume that this means this is not his view, and he's just kind of trying to represent others' view. He said, another school of thought is that taking race into account increases security, and that might be legal under Korematsu versus the United States. Now, uh, he's referencing a case here, Korematsu. Um, that's actually the, the famous Japanese internment case. Uh, if you find yourself arguing uh, and referencing Korematsu as backup, 
uh, you may be on the wrong side of an issue. But uh, just to to defend uh, Walker here, Walker's Walker's saying this isn't my view. This is this is another school of thought is that we could take race into account and it might be legal under Korematsu. Um, so the summary here is that uh, they are debating this kind of general policy rather than the short-term interim policy because they need to get on the same page about where they're going. Will it be race-based or not before they worry about an interim solution? Now, Kavanaugh kind of... Uh, Kavanaugh responds. So now we're on email number two. Kavanaugh responds. And he starts off by saying, look, I agree with a race-neutral long-term approach. Okay, so I don't... I don't know if that shocks Cory Booker or not, but Kavanaugh says we shouldn't have basically. Hey, we, we shouldn't have a race neutral, or uh, we should we should have a race neutral long term approach. We shouldn't take race race into account. Uh, but this this committee, he thinks they should be worrying about an interim approach, and he says this is actually of critical importance to the security of the airlines and American people in the next six months or so, especially given Al Qaeda's track record of timing between terrorist incidents. So there's nothing racial here, and there's nothing that he says it's even supporting, even a temporary, even a temporary racial profiling. Uh, there's nothing, nothing he's saying that would support any of that. Uh, he's just saying, hey, this working group needs to solve this interim issue quickly because, hey, Al Qaeda's track record is they've, you know, these terrorist incidents, you know. I want a long-term race-neutral approach, but you guys should not be focusing on the long-term. You guys should be focusing on the short-term because we need a short-term solution here. Um, but he doesn't say what that solution should be. He doesn't say whether it should include race or national origin or anything. Okay? So that's how Kavanaugh responds. Walker responds back to Kavanaugh, email number three. He's, and he basically says, yeah, but not everyone is bought in on a long-term race-neutral approach. Right? Joel was asking about the use of race generally. So I don't know who Joel is. He's... His name's not on the CC uh, list, or I didn't see it here, but um, maybe someone knows who Joel is out there. But so he says, look, this guy, Joel, uh, he was asking about using race generally. So um, he's kind of saying, yeah, I agree with you, uh, Brett, but we're not all bought into this uh, long-term race-neutral approach. This guy, Joel, was asking about it. And so Kavanaugh responds, and he says, I really did not care what Joel was or was not advocating or discussing. And then he kind of says, look, my point is that you and the working group need to be focusing on interim measures, short-term measures. And he understand, he says, I understand it's not an easy issue, but this has got to be the focus as a short-term solution right now. Um, and then we can worry about the long-term solution. And as far as the long-term solution, he's, he's made it very clear that he supports uh, race neutrality. So Walker responds here and says, no, we, we, this is now email number five. Walker responds and says, no, we do have to worry about the interim issue eventually, but we have to decide the general issue first, right? It's hard. It's hard to do. That's basically what he says. Okay, so they're basically having a disagreement about whether the focus should be on interim solutions or general solutions first. That's, that's this. And the last email in this chain uh, is Kavanaugh responding. And he says... Uh, basically, the, the people who favor some use of race or national origin don't need to worry about the interim solution problem because they're just going to use their race and national origin solution for the, the general problem later. They'll just do that now. Right? They just, they're just going to use that. So, But people who want a race-neutral solution, such as you and I, this is a quote, he says, such as you and I. So he's putting himself in that category. He wants a race-neutral solution. We need to focus our attention on the interim solution. Because what we do is going to be uh, eventually is going to be more effective uh, in in a in a race neutral solution will be more effective, right? Uh, 
And but what can we do? Sorry, what can we do now that's that's effective before we get a race neutral system in place? He's basically saying, look, a, a race neutral system will be difficult to do, and 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 frankly, any new system is going to be difficult to do and comprehensive, and it's going to be a big issue. And we know it should be race neutral, but be, be, between now and then, what do we do? And that's what our focus should be. What do we do? So, look, and that's the end of this entire subject. So this is the the other quote bombshell or whatever. This is the, the big deal that Cory Booker risked his Senate uh, uh, seat for, uh, is this revelation that Brett Kavanaugh is saying, hey, I want a system that's not based on race or national origin. That's the goal. And there's an interim issue uh, of, of getting a system in place, and the committee should focus on that. Now, is Kavanaugh saying that they should uh, take the country of origin into account in the meantime? I don't know. Maybe. It's not clear. Uh, honestly, it's not clear, but he doesn't say that. Uh, all he says is they need to address the issue now, right? And he says he wants race neutrality uh, and country of origin neutrality as the general solution. Unlike other people in the committee who want race to be considered for the general solution. So he's on the good side here. He's on the, hey, let's not take race into account side. He's one of the good guys in this email chain. I don't know if Cory Booker doesn't see that, but that's what this is. I don't know who the Joel guy is, but Joel, maybe you could say, is, is one of the guys who uh, wants to take race into account generally, but, but not Brett Kavanaugh. So if anything, uh, I think this is good for Brett Kavanaugh. Okay, so that's subject number two. And that's it. That's all we got for subject number two. So subject number three. And this is the last subject of these emails released by, by Cory Booker. Uh, and this is uh, a single email in the chain. Um, and it's in April 2002. And it's from someone named uh, Richard Green on behalf, on behalf of James Brown from the Office of Management and Budget. And he's asking the White House counsel, among other people, to comment on a proposed Native American Small Business Development Program bill piece of legislation that's being proposed called the Native American Small Business Development Program. And he's asked for comments on it. And the email released is an email uh, from Brett Kavanaugh responding to this request for comment. And he says, look, you know, there's some policy concerns with this, but there's also constitutionality concerns. And the focus of his email is the constitutionality concerns. It's not a very long email. And he says... Look, uh, if this if this is going to solely deal with tribes and members of tribes and tribal activities, then there's not a problem here with this Native American Small Business Development Program. It's fine. But if it's going to grant benefits to Native Americans because of their race or ethnicity alone, that will raise serious problems under, uh, he says, Rice and the Constitution. Now, he's referring to Rice versus uh Cayetano, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, uh, but uh, Rice versus Cayetano, uh, which was a, a previous um, a previous ruling. So this will cause problems under Rice and the Constitution. He says, which generally requ requires that all Americans be treated as equal. And then he puts in parentheses, absent a program narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest. So if you recognize that language, narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest, that's the language from uh, the, the original case that we were talking about, Adirond Constructors versus Pena, 
uh, where the court ruled uh, that uh, racial classifications from the government must be analyzed under a standard of strict scrutiny um, unless they're narrowly tailored to further compelling government interests. So, so Kavanaugh is aware of that, obviously, and he's saying, look, you know, it's fine if this is going to apply just to tribes, but if it grants benefits to Native Americans based on their race, you're going to have a problem under uh, this, previous, this previous ruling Rice and the Constitution, which requires that all Americans be treated equally. And then he kind of says, well, except this one, one narrowly compelling government interest thing, which is the case we just talked about. Uh, and so then he says, well, the desire, to, the desire to remedy societal discrimination societal discrimination, is not considered a compelling, a compelling interest. Right? So he says, look, the desire to remedy these societal discriminations is not considered a compelling interest. Then he cites case. He's not saying this is what I think and it shouldn't be. He says, see Croson. Now, he's talking about uh, the city of Richmond versus J.A. Croson Company, which was a case before the Supreme Court in which the court held that the city of Richmond's minority set-aside program uh, which gave preferences to minority-owned businesses um, in, in awarding uh, municipal contracts, was unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause. So there's case law here from the Supreme Court that says this kind of stuff is unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. And Kavanaugh is saying, hey, um, this bill you guys are proposing, it's fine if it's just for tribes and, and tribal activities, but if it's going to grant these benefits to Native Americans based on their race or ethnicity, it's a problem. And he cites some reasons. He cites two different cases, the Constitution. Um, and that's it. That's the end of this, I guess, huge revelation about Brett Kavanaugh is that he said that this bill would cause problems and cited some case law. Uh you know, I don't know that worrying about the constitutionality of a proposed bill and citing precedent indicates that you're a racist, but that certainly is Cory Booker's implication in releasing all of this. So this is it. This is what uh, this is what Cory Booker has risked his Senate seat to bring you. This is the information. Um, he is uh, he made a big deal about it. He. Uh, released these emails and um, talked about, you know, he, he said, oh, the, the, the subject is uh, the subject is racial profiling, which was the subject of one of the emails. He wasn't lying, right? Uh, and he made a big deal about it. And I guess you're supposed to get upset about this uh, unless you actually read, in which case there's nothing here. In fact, the only things that I see here are a guy making some decent arguments and counterarguments trying to do his job. So, you know, this whole thing, like I said earlier, is just another example of, of people seeing racism where none exists, right? Uh, and obviously it's predominantly coming from the left. But it's, it's, gotten, it's gotten really crazy. And this is a complicated example of it because Cory Booker looks here and he basically sees the white power sign in some emails where it doesn't exist unless there's an attachment of Brett Kavanaugh giving the okay sign and, and saying this means white power uh, that's not included in these emails. There's nothing here, right? But Corey sees it anyway. He sees what he wants to see. He really wants to see racism. So that's what he sees, right? Um, and, and I think this is just the exact same thing as what happened to Zena Bash. So uh, 
for those of you who don't know, I mean, I'll talk about it briefly. Uh, the day before, Zena Bash, who's who's uh, on um, on Kavanaugh's team, I guess was supporting Kavanaugh in some way, was sitting behind him. And, you know, she's sitting there for days. She's crossing her arm. She's probably fidgeting. I would be fidgeting. I'd probably be scratching and, and uh, who knows, picking hangnails. I don't know what I'd be doing, right? But it's probably boring half the time to be sitting there. She looks bored uh, half the time. So she's sitting there with her arms crossed. And, uh, and her fingers on her right hand, as they are lying on her left arm, casually look kind of like maybe an okay sign you know the okay sign i'll I'll, actually for for people watching the video there's not a lot of video with this this is mostly just audio but i'll put a picture of this up there so you can see what i'm talking about uh she's she's i guess they're saying making this okay sign now you know whether she's consciously doing that uh or not i think it's a that's a that's a reach to claim that you know what's going on in her brain and she's intentionally you know touching her index finger to her thumb <laughs> to make an okay sign while it's resting on her arm but you know that's the that's the claim the claim is that she's making this sign she's flashing the sign but worse than that the claim is that it's not an okay sign it's a white power sign this means white power now uh you can dismiss this out of hand as an insane insane claim um, no one sane can believe this. Uh, even the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, which is not a right-leaning organization, has debunked this myth of the OK symbol being a white power sign. It was a, it was uh, suggested on 4chan as a, a, a way to troll liberals, right? And, of course, because crazy leftists, I don't mean Democrats or even kind of moderate leftists, but the, the crazy leftists are very easy to troll. They they bought it hook, line, and sinker. Oh, it's a white power sign, right? So, you know, of course you can find several examples. I've tweeted some examples of Obama using the OK sign. Um, you know, my wife is Chinese. If you've any of you know, uh, a, you watch Asian women take pictures of themselves half the time they're they're making an okay symbol i think it's probably bigger in japan and korea than it is in china but it's like a normal thing and to the rest of the entire universe it means okay but to a couple crazy people it means white power uh and so they just went uh crazy uh on twitter about this and and they said that uh, Zena bash is a white supremacist flashing the white power sign and uh and this is a problem. So, you know, this is this got me to thinking, uh, and I, you know, I'll wrap this up here uh, uh, quickly because the the primary purpose of this podcast is just to go through those emails. But you know, this whole thing did get me thinking: um, what is happening in in the world? You know, every time I think that we've reached peak insanity here, uh, I'm I'm wrong, and. You know, really got me thinking. Like, what what's going on? Why are these people? Why is Cory Booker seeing racism in these emails? Why are people seeing Zena Bash's hand as a white power sign? And the only thing that I could think of it, it reminded it. You know, what immediately came to mind was cults, um, and and actually the not not just cults generally, but the the the, the cults that predict the apocalypse, because there's been a lot of them historically and. There's kind of a, a famous uh, book called When Prophecy Fails uh, by a guy named uh, 
Leon uh, Festinger. And he studied this small group uh, of like people in Chicago who believed in this UFO and they were called seekers and they thought there was this UFO and there's going to be an apocalypse and blah, blah, blah. Um, but of course, the, the predicted date of their apocalypse came and went, nothing happened. And so he, he was studying how did they react. And an interesting thing happened, and I, this is one of the early uses of the term cognitive dissonance. You hear people throw this term cognitive dissonance around a lot. Well, one of the first uses of it was from this guy, Festinger, and he... Um, he noticed that <clears throat> these people uh, would often double down on their irrational beliefs when presented with con uh, contrary uh, evidence. Now, people have done more um, extensive studies, but the point is here, you know, not everyone abandoned their beliefs. Some did, right? Uh, so some of these people called seekers, these UFO people, some of them abandoned their belief when the UFO didn't come. But not everyone. Some people doubled down. And there have been further studies uh, on this. There's been other, uh, much more work. This book, I think, was from the 50s or something. So there's been much more work since then in studying this phenomenon. Um, and I think, I think it's related to this term called disconfirmed expectancy. Um, but uh, basically, there's an interesting phenomenon where some people, when they hold these irrational beliefs, and it partly depends on like how strongly they hold them and, and whether they have support structure around them and all this other stuff. But they'll hold these beliefs, and when shown contrary evidence, uh, they'll just double down instead of, uh, instead of abandon these beliefs. And so uh, this, this idea of, of disconfirmed expectancy is basically uh, this idea that you're expecting something, and then it's not, you know, you, you have kind of this contrary, um, this thing that happens that's contrary to your expectation. Um, and this term is often paired with this term cognitive dissonance that we talk about because uh, it results in these two competing ideas inside your head, right? And actually, um, uh, researchers can use disconfirmed expectancy to study cognitive dissonance by uh, having, having people uh, you know, building expectation in people about something and then having, having something work out that's not what was expected, and it kind of creates this momentary cognitive dissonance, and, and they can study it there. Um, so why am I talking about this? Well, there's, you know, there's a few effects uh, that you experience when you have this kind of disconfirmed expectancy. Um, one of these, one of the categories is something called hedonic consequences, which basically means like everything's going to feel worse. Like food doesn't taste as good and colors aren't as attractive and people seem meaner than they are or whatever, right? Um, and you also have this tendency kind of like this, this, another kind of related topic here is this true believer syndrome, but you have this tendency to try and rationalize and continue to rationalize and come up with a wider and wider cognitive dissonance gap. And um, the more that you double down, the more you kind of have to double down there. Right? The more you invest in this, the more you have to stick with it, even if it just becomes obviously crazy. And know I think eventually for a lot of people, there's a breaking point, but it's not clear where that is. And so I was thinking about why are these people why are there so many people out there who are excited to see a white power sign where there isn't one or uh, racism in emails where there isn't any? And, um, and actually, I guess you could go on the other side, like willing to completely overlook behavior of, for example, Hillary Clinton, um, just because it doesn't fit with their narrative. Why? Why are they not willing to do that? Now, to be clear, I don't have a I don't have a horse in this race in the sense that I'm you know I'm neither Republican nor Democrat. Uh, I'm uh, I'm an I'll call myself an anti-statist, 
right? Uh, I'm, I'm not really on one of these teams. I do want smaller government, absolutely. So I guess I'm on a team in that respect. Um, but if you look at this, uh, if you look at these these people and, and what's going on with them, well, I was I was wondering, has there been this disconfirmed expectancy? And there has been, right? Everyone thought Trump, everyone, all, the, the one side thought Trump would lose by a landslide. They really thought Trump would lose. There were certain Trump would lose. I mean, 95% certain, right? Right up until he won. Um, they were certain, kind of like the seekers were certain that the aliens were coming. And although they had obviously more evidence uh, than the seekers did that, that Hillary might win, but she didn't. And immediately, I think the that group of people split into two categories: the people who accepted it and was like, "Oh, okay, well, Trump won. I guess I guess that's where we're living now, and and he's the president, and I don't like him, maybe, but you know, don't like most presidents, okay." And then there's a the group of people who needed to rationalize. Why didn't Hillary win? And the first thing they came up with, Rus- Russia collusion. Now, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of... Uh, Russia collusion wasn't just invented at this point. I mean, there, there's a whole narrative, and, and you can read... Um, I'm sorry, you can listen to, like, Dan Bongino, for example, talks about uh, the Russian collusion narrative very extensively. Um, but... They gra- so this, this idea was out there, but they grasped onto it. There must have been collusion, right? He didn't win legitimately, right? And they tried to rationalize, oh, she won the popular vote, which is like, okay, but it's, that's not how it works, right? If, if it was by popular vote, he would have campaigned differently. Like, she knew that too. It's not by popular vote. It's, there's an electoral college and there's a strategy. So um, they said, well, she won the popular vote, so he didn't really win. Or there was, there was uh, you know, Facebook you know, had fake news or the Russians, and they were trying to come up with reasons why could Trump win. It couldn't possibly be that there was enough people in the country to vote against them and vote for Trump. It could only be some some outside event, right? So the rationalizations become more and more desperate. And as it's failed, um, you know, I think they've gone more and more crazy. And so, again, this disconfirmed expectancy of Trump losing, and then, frankly, the Russian thing isn't happening anyway, so, right, they, Russian collusion, Russian collusion, there's been nothing there. In fact, there's evidence uh, now to the contrary that actually uh, the collusion may have been uh, from kind of the deep state with with Hillary connections, Russian collusion, and that Mueller's job is actually just to, to sweep that under the under the rug. I don't know if that's true or not. My, my point is... Uh, Russian collusion has been pretty weak, right? There's been nothing there. There's no there there. And so uh, I, I think they're getting increasingly frustrated. And one thing that happens when you have this disconfirmed expectancy, again, is you've got these hedonic consequences where everything is kind of worse um, and you get this more powerful emotion and, and more and more rationalization, which gets harder and harder. And if you look at how uh, the radical left is behaving, that's exactly what's happening, right? They're getting more and more bitter, more and more angry, um, and you know, they, they are getting more and more, you know, they're, they're yelling more and more, they're screaming more and more. If you look at Antifa, they're burning things and beating people up, right? Now make no mistake, that's not coming from the right. I mean, yeah, there was, uh, those, the, the crazy, uh, torch wielding people in North Carolina, which I think everyone has, has, uh, heard about now. Yes, that, that did happen. I'm not trying to minimize that, but Antifa happens all the time. They're always beating people up. No one ever cares, right? Uh, at least no, no one in the media ever cares, right? So they're getting crazier and crazier and crazier, right? 
Um, and you know, people with these dissociative tendencies, they have, uh, again, they have this higher kind of inclination to um, disconnect with physical reality and to see improbable things with a lot of certainty, right? Well, that's, that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing this uh, increase in bitterness, increase in emotion, and an increase in believing things that are absolutely ridiculous. All three of those things are happening. Um, and, you know, again, look at, this, look at this supposed white power symbol. I'm putting it on the screen now for those of you who are watching. What do you see here, right? What do you see? I don't see, I mean, I don't even know if there is a white power sign, so I, I guess I wouldn't know what to look for, but there, I just see a, a lady with her arms crossed, right? But they see white supremacy. And this Cory Booker thing is just a more complicated version of this white power sign hallucination. And something to note here uh, that I think is very important, these hallucinations about what they're seeing, there's no null hypothesis for any of them. So, and this is very important. That means that there's no way to... Um, the, the, the accusations that they're making here are non-falsifiable. They can make an accusation and there's nothing, there's nothing she could say. There's nothing Zena Bash could possibly say to make them believe anything else other than it's a white power sign, right? And that's called no null hypothesis. It's a, uh, it's a logical fallacy um, and uh, it's obviously irrational. You shouldn't take it seriously. Uh, but I think Cory Booker has the same thing. He, he can read into these emails all he wants, and there's really nothing that Kavanaugh could say that would make him not see racism in these emails. He has no null hypothesis. Neither does Kamala Harris and a lot of these other people. There's no null hypothesis. They believe it, therefore it's true. Uh, and I invite you, I invite you to imagine this. Stick yourself in front of a camera for a week at some Senate hearing. And we're going to watch you squirm in your seat and fidget. Are you 100% certain while you're scratching or doing whatever? Are you 100% certain that you'll never, ever make that gesture? Assuming you're not even conscious of it. Let's say she's not conscious of it, which you wouldn't be, right? Make, I come up with some random gesture and I decide it's a, it's a problem and I sit you down in front of a camera and for a few days and then I say, oh, look, you made the gesture, right? And then I convince everyone, aha, you're a white supremacist or you're a Nazi or whatever because you made the gesture. I'm asking you to think about if that's the world you want to live in, right? It's not the world I want to live in. It's a world of insanity is what it is. Um, and you know, like I said before, I keep thinking we're, we're at peak lunacy here, but I, I don't, I'm not sure anymore because I don't know how this ends. I mean, you know, I, I, I read a little bit about, uh, these cases of disconfirmed expectancy and true believer syndrome and, and cognitive dissonance, and it's not clear how they end. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a, I don't know how far they can go. I mean, some people believe that the aliens are still coming, so I don't know when it will end for people. But I encourage everyone listening, do not get caught up in the paranoid delusions of these crazy people that are tweeting about this kind of stuff. They are literally paranoid delusions. And I know what the word literally means. I don't mean figuratively. I mean they are literally paranoid delusions. Now, we can disagree with each other. We should. 
And we can argue vehemently uh, back and forth with each other. We should. That's what free speech is about. That's how, you know, that's how we move society forward. But if we start taking this kind of craziness seriously, Western civilization won't just fail. It'll be carried away in a straitjacket. Anyway, look, thanks for, for listening and or watching, those of you uh, watching video. Um, as always, uh, you can check out this and other content at 751.com. That's uh, 751 spelled out in letters.com. Um, please subscribe, like, and share. You can go to 751.com slash subscribe, and there's a bunch of ways to subscribe to the show. Um, you can also support the show on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash unsafe space. That's right, unsafe space. Trigger warning. Uh, and with cryptocurrency, you can support the show as well. You just go to S-E-V-E-N-F-I-F-T-Y-O-N-E.com. Uh, -E -E That's 751.com. And uh, support the show. Thanks again, everyone. Take care.